You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. Amen. If you have your Bible or your ESV scripture journal containing the Gospel of Luke, will you grab that and go with me to Luke chapter 8? Luke chapter 8. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are some stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. Take one now, take one on your way out of worship today, and just start reading that Bible. That's our gift to you. Start reading it and see what happens in your life. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? We stand because we truly believe that this Word we're reading this morning is different. It's different from every other book we encounter. This truly is the Word of God, and so we're standing to show our reverence and our readiness to hear from our Lord. So listen carefully to these words. Luke chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 4 to 15. At the end of the reading, I'll say, This is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, Thanks be to God. Luke 8, verses 4 to 15. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, Jesus said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into the good soil and grew, and yielded a hundredfold. And he said these things. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, And bear fruit with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We have been looking at Luke's gospel, a reliable account of Jesus' birth, his ministry, his death, and resurrection. And very recently, we've been looking at Jesus' public ministry, which lasted only about three years. And we've learned that during those three years, Jesus devoted himself essentially to three things, healing, teaching, and gathering a community of followers. And Luke has given us examples of each of those, and he'll continue to do so. But now we're entering the part of Luke's gospel that has the highest concentration of Jesus' teaching. Jesus was a master communicator. He taught almost entirely pictorially. He gave us profound theology, but he did so using images, using real-life, down-to-earth stories. 
See, Jesus had two things, at least two things, that many modern communicators are lacking. First, he had a clear and powerful message, the gospel message, and second, he had a compelling way of communicating that message. See, Jesus knew the power of story. Children, adults as well for that matter, don't say, give me the facts. They say, tell me a story. Tell me a story. There is nothing so compelling as a good story. The Southern writer Flannery O'Connor once said, A story is good when we continue to see more and more in it. Now, if that's true, then Jesus was among one of the best storytellers ever. Because no matter how many times we look at his stories, there's always something fresh to be found there, something new to be discovered. Now, we can be a little more precise when we talk about Jesus' teaching. He did more than teach in stories. He taught in parables. That's the word that we find at the beginning of our passage for today. Verse 4, when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. What exactly is a parable? Well, it's more than a story. It's an extended analogy. It's an extended analogy that is designed to convince. Parables are stories with intent. Stories with intent. Jesus intends to take us somewhere. You might have heard someone use the definition that parables are heavenly stories or earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Earthly stories with heavenly meanings. I don't think that definition quite works because the parables are very concerned with life on this earth here and now. When Jesus tells these stories, he does so to change our attitude, to change our behavior, to change the way we go and live our life today. He's interested in the here and now. These are stories with intent. They're taking us somewhere, moving us to action. But more than likely, the parables are fictitious. In other words, there was no real character called the Good Samaritan. There was no real character called the Prodigal Son. Jesus fashions these characters in order to form us. He invents these characters in order to instruct us. My favorite definition of the parables comes from a modern poet. says it like this. Parables are imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. One man named Klein Snodgrass, there's a name for you, has written a very uh, important work on the parables, and he's discovered a number of characteristics. If you look at all the parables Jesus told, there's some common characteristics. One of them is that these parables spark thought in ways that direct communication does not. So think of it like this. Many of us already have our minds made up on certain matters, right? We have solidified our thinking. We've built a fortress around the front of our mind. We're ready for any sort of direct attack. And so direct new information is, is not going to get through. But what the parable does, what indirect communication, what storytelling does, is it finds a back door. It sneaks in, brings a fresh insight, a new way of thinking, a new way of living. That's what the parables do. 22 of Jesus' parables begin with a question. Many of them end with a question. All the parables are designed to answer at least one question. Finding the implied question is an important part of interpretation. Today we're looking at the parable that's commonly called the parable of the sower. 
I suggest the implied question in this parable is this. Why is it that some people believe while others do not? I'm sure we can all think of someone in our life right now. A family member, a friend. And they are just not interested at all in the gospel. They are not interested at all in the truths of Christianity. Why is that? Why is it that some people here believe and produce much fruit and others don't? As we go for a stroll in this imaginary garden, as we notice the real toads, I think the answer to that question will become clear. I want us to look at the major details of this parable together, beginning with the sower and the seed. Then we'll look at the different types of soil. And then we'll conclude with some implications for belief and practice. Remember, parables are stories with intent. Jesus intends to take us somewhere. He intends to accomplish something in us by telling us this parable. What is it? We'll discover that together. But let's start with this. The sower and the seed. Verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, Jesus said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. Now, for those of us who live in a world of Amazon and Instacart, and those who still get out and do their own shopping, Aldi and Publix, this parable probably sounds like it's describing life on another planet, right? I mean, we don't know anything about farming. We don't know what it takes. We don't know what it looks like. Most of us have probably forgotten that our food was actually grown somewhere by someone or something. Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry is one of my favorite authors. He's written over 50 books. For over 40 years, he's lived and farmed in a small town in Kentucky. Many of his essays have an agrarian theme to them, and he sort of pokes fun at what he calls urban shoppers. That would be probably all of us in this room today. In one of his essays called The Pleasures of Eating, he really pokes fun at us urban shoppers. Let me give you this uh, little introduction to help you think your way into the setting of this parable. This is from one of Barry's essays. Eating, he says, is an agricultural fact. It's an agricultural fact. Eating ends the annual drama of the food economy that begins with planting and birth. Most eaters today, however, are no longer aware that this is true. They buy what they want or what they've been persuaded to want within the limits of what they can get. They pay mostly without protest what they are charged, and they mostly ignore certain critical questions about the quality and the cost of what they are sold. How fresh is it? How pure or clean is it? How free of dangerous chemicals? Most urban shoppers would tell you that food is produced on farms, but most of them do not know what farms or what kind of farms or where the farms are or what knowledge or skills are involved in farming. Food is pretty much an abstract idea, something they do not know or imagine until it appears on the grocery shelf or on the table at home. The food industrialists have by now persuaded millions of consumers to prefer food that is already prepared. They will grow, deliver, and cook your food for you, and just like your mother, beg you to eat it. That they do not yet offer to insert it pre-chewed into your mouth is only because they have found a profitable way to do so. It's funny, but it's true. 
As we hear this parable, it probably does sound like life on another planet. We're urban shoppers. But when Jesus first told this story, his first century hearers pictured this scene instantly. They knew exactly what he was talking about. They pictured the sower, the farmer, on foot, no machinery in those days, of course, with a bag of seed around his neck, probably wheat or barley, walking throughout the field, dipping his hand into the bag and scattering the seed upon the ground. That's the central image of the parable. Visualize it. Keep it there. Now, this is a good parable with which to begin because this parable comes with its own interpretation. See, after Jesus tells the parable, his disciples ask him, Hey, Jesus, what the heck does that mean? And Jesus explains. But even Jesus' explanation is going to need a bit of explanation. His explanation in verse 11, now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So first of all, the seed is the truth. The truth of God's world, the truth about God, God's world, our place within it, the truth of King Jesus, the one who came into the world, a world full of suffering and sin in order to make all sad things come untrue. The seed is the truth of God's word. The sower then must be the one who preaches and teaches and proclaims God's word. In Luke's gospel, this is Jesus himself, the master communicator. In our day and age, it's anyone who follows King Jesus by proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the gospel. It's anyone who scatters, who shares the good news. So, so far... So simple, right? The seed is the word of God. The sower is anyone who shares or scatters the word of God. So far, so simple. But the parable becomes much more complex as soon as the seed makes contact with the ground. Second, we need to consider the different soils. Let's keep reading. A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path. And was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. So we have four different types of ground here. Jesus describes four seed-in-soil situations, if you will. Now remember that central image. The farmer on foot, bag of seed around his neck, dipping his hand into the bag and scattering it across his field. If the farmer was going to reach the, every last inch of space that he had, it was inevitable that some of the seeds would fall along the path. If he's going to the far corners of his field, some of it would go to the path. And so Jesus describes just that. Some of the seed falls on the path and there it becomes food for the birds. Some of the seed would fall on rocky ground with only a thin layer of soil, and it would not be able to go deep. It would not get the moisture it needed so that when the heat came, it would be scorched. It would wither. It wouldn't grow. Third, some seed would fall among the thorns. Over a hundred types of thorn grew in Palestine, in this area where Jesus is doing his ministry. There were thorns everywhere. If the seed fell in an area where thorns and thistles already were growing... 
then it would not be able to get the moisture it needed. There would be too much competition for the nutrients, and so it would be choked. But fourth and finally, some of the seed falls into what Jesus calls the good soil. And there it grows and it yields a great harvest. Now important to notice in this parable is that the first three seed and soil situations are failures. The first three are failures. And the failure incurs, occurs at increasingly later stages in the process. Do you see that? The first seed has no chance. The birds snatch it away immediately. The second one begins to grow, but it doesn't last. The third one grows for a while, but eventually it's choked. The first three are failures. Now, the easiest of these four to understand the meaning are going to be the first and the final ones. It's the middle two that require the most reflection because the middle two seed and soil situations, it seems, it seems like there's a positive response. But in the end, it's unproductive. So what does all of this mean? Well, Jesus again gives us the explanation in the next verses. The ones along the path, Jesus says in verse 12, are those who have heard, then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. As for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So now Jesus makes it clear that these four seed and soil situations... They stand for, they represent four responses to the Word of God. Four responses to the Word of God. And we can label them something like this. Immediate dismissal, superficial commitment, gradual overpowering, and then finally, deep and abiding discipleship. A few comments on each one. First, immediate dismissal. There are some people who have no interest in the gospel. No interest whatsoever in the truths of Christianity. Maybe they think the Bible is unreliable. Maybe they think Christianity is irrelevant, outdated. For whatever reason, they're not interested. And Jesus says that when this happens, we must see it for what it truly is. It's the spiritual war happening all around us. Jesus says very clearly here, it's the devil who comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they don't believe, so that they are not saved. That's the first response to the word, immediate dismissal. The second response is superficial commitment. Jesus here describes, interestingly, enthusiasm, great enthusiasm, great excitement, a passion, but it's a passion that swiftly dies. He describes the seed that falls on the rock as the person who hears the word and receives it with joy. There's that enthusiasm. But he makes it clear that this is an emotional and ephemeral, a passing response. It doesn't last. It doesn't last. They have no root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, they fall away. When things get tough, maybe when the person learns more about the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus... They say, no, that's, that's not for me. 
that initial excitement fades. Third, Jesus describes an, a gradual overpowering. The seed that falls along, among the thorns, he says, this is those who hear, but as they go on their way, now notice that, as they go on their way, so there's a practical taking of steps here. It seems that they're moving in the right direction. If this previous response is a superficial commitment, a passion that swiftly dies, this third response is a practical taking of steps that slowly dies, slowly fades. They go on their way, but as they do in time, they're choked. They're choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. In other words, as they go out, other masters call to them, and they make their decision. See, Jesus will tell us in Luke 16, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You must make your choice. Fourth and finally, there's what we could call deep and abiding discipleship. The only positive response of the four. The seed that falls in the good soil, Jesus says, these are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast. They hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and they bear fruit with patience. The only one that produces fruit, lasting fruit, abiding fruit. Why? Because the seed goes deep into the heart, and there it stays. This is the person who perseveres. Perseveres in their hearing of the gospel, their believing of it, their application of it. It's the only positive response. So there you have it. The toads, the details of the parable, the seed, the sower, and the four types of soil. The Word of God, the person who scatters the Word of God, and four responses to the Word of God. Now, in closing, what does all of this mean for us? Remember, parables are stories with intent. What does Jesus intend to do here? What is he hoping to accomplish in us as he tells this story. I want to conclude with some implications for belief and practice. I think having heard this parable, there are at least three questions we ought to ask ourselves. I think Jesus wants us to locate ourselves within the story. So the first question we need to ask is this one. Which type of soil am I? Which type of soil am I and how do I know? How do I know? Now, Jesus' answer there is clear. Time will tell. Time will tell. The good soil, the person who truly responds to the gospel, this is the person who perseveres. See, saving faith, authentic faith, it stands the test of time. It perseveres. Even when things get hard, even when things are happening in your life that you cannot understand or explain, whatever the response of the, the previous seed and soil situations, whatever the response was, it was less than saving faith. Only the fourth response represents true faith that perseveres, that lasts. So how do you know? How do you know? Time will tell. Time will tell. By the way, Thinking about what type of soil you are and the other types of soil, I should probably say this is the reason why at Faith Church 
we don't do traditional altar calls. If you come from a church background where every Sunday morning there was some sort of an altar call, a plea for the hearer to come to the front here and now and pray and be saved, you know, like right now before this song ends, we don't do that at Faith Church. And maybe you're kind of wondering, why? Why don't you do that? We have good reasons for not doing that, and one of them is in this parable. Notice in this parable that you can have all the enthusiasm in the world. You can have an emotional response, and it's not authentic faith. It's not authentic faith. See, we want to see if whatever you're sensing right now, if it lasts. That's what we're interested in. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor, a 20th century pastor, sometimes referred to as the doctor. He tells a story about a man who once came to him expressing disappointment. Disappointment because Lloyd-Jones had not given an altar call after his sermon one night. You know, doctor, if you had asked me to stay behind last night, I would have done so, the man said. Well, Lloyd-Jones said, I'm asking you now. Come with me now. Oh, no, 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 the man replied. But if you'd asked me last night, well, then I would have done so. Oh, my dear friend, the doctor said, if what happened to you last night does not last for 24 hours, then I'm not interested in it. If you're not as ready to come with me now as you were last night, then you have not got the right, the true thing. Whatever affected you last night was only temporary and passing. You still do not see your real need of Christ. Does it last? Does it persevere? Second, we need to ask ourselves, am I actively sowing? To blend the images a bit, if you are, in fact, the good soil, then you will also be a sower. You will also be concerned with scattering the seed, sharing the good news of the gospel wherever it is that God has placed you. And let me remind you that sowing, it seems like something so simple, so unimpressive, right? And yet it is the beginning of the most powerful thing. Life. Growth. Are you actively sowing wherever it is that God has placed you? And related to that, a third and final question. What is my theology of sowing? In other words, do you understand that it is your role simply to sow and you're happy to trust God with the results? See, if a modern-day church growth guru were to retell this parable, I think the elements would be reversed. I think they would tell the parable like this. There were four sowers and one type of soil. There were four ministry methods, four different communicators, and it was the one who was the best communicator, the sharpest, the most cutting edge. He's the one who got the results. He's the one who got the job done. But that's not how Jesus tells the parable. Don't miss this. In Jesus' telling of the parable, there is only one variable that determines the failure or the success, and it's the type of soil. It's not the sower. It's not the presentation of the message. The only variable is the type of soil. 
that gives us a certain theology of sowing. Let me close with this. The closest thing I know to a modern-day retelling of this parable is a movie that came out about 20 years ago called The Emperor's Club. It's not a very well-known movie. It's very hard to find these days, as a matter of fact. In the movie, Kevin Kline plays a character named William Hundert. He's a classics professor at a well-known, renowned boys' prep school. And Hundert thinks of himself as far more than a teacher. He thinks of himself as a molder of character. He wants to help these boys become contributors to society, leaders. And he's a great teacher. And everything is going well in Hunter's class until one day he receives a new student. Sedgwick Bell, the son of a senator. And Bell is arrogant, and he's rebellious, and he does not listen to a word Hunter has to say. But you know what? Hunter doesn't give up on him. And slowly, surprisingly, Bell begins to change. His essays get better. His attitude gets better. He rises to the top of his class. In fact, he qualifies for this prestigious competition the school has every year called Mr. Julius Caesar. The Mr. Julius Caesar contest, where only three students in the whole school stand on the stage wearing their togas, and they answer questions about ancient history until only one remains and is crowned the victor. Bell qualifies for it. And so there he is on stage, and Hundert, his teacher, is the one who's asking the questions. And at the beginning of the competition, everything is going great. In fact, Bell is doing so well that the people can't hardly believe the progress the young boy has made. They're all amazed at it. He's off to a great start, but then something happens. As Hundert continues to ask the questions, he looks carefully and he notices that Bell is cheating. Inside his toga, he's pinned the answers. And you can see the heartbreak in Hundert's eyes when he realizes that Bell had not changed, that he'd been cheating all along. And even later, when he's confronted about it, he shows no remorse, he just shrugs it off. The viewer is left thinking that Bell's case is a hopeless one, and Hundert feels that he has failed miserably as a teacher. Fast forward 25 years. Hundert is now retired. One day he receives a letter in the mail inviting him to a class reunion. But it's more than a class reunion. It's a rematch of the infamous... Mr. Julius Caesar competition, funded, put on by none other than Sedgwick Bell. Bell requests for Hunter to come back and be the master of ceremonies to ask the questions, just like he had done 25 years ago. He wants to show his teacher that finally he has changed. And so Hunter accepts the invitation. He goes, and the competition begins again. There's Bell, now wealthy, now doing fairly well in life, and his classmates, the competition begins, and Bell's off to a great start, just like 25 years ago, but this time everything seems to be above board, nothing pinned inside the toga this time. You can see the joy in Hunter's eyes as he realizes that finally, after all of these years, when he thought it was never possible, his rebellious student has changed, and he's grown into a fine young man now. But then again, something happens. Hundred looks, and as he looks even closer, 
he notices that Belle is wearing an earpiece. And from the back of the room, someone has been feeding him the answers the whole time. It was all a setup. It was all staged so that Bell could announce his plan to run for Senate. He took advantage of his teacher. Again, we walk away feeling that Bell's case is a hopeless one. And Hundert is convinced that he has failed miserably as a teacher. But that's not where the film ends. In one of the final scenes, Hundert goes back to his room and all of his other students surprise him. They throw him a party. They celebrate this man who taught them so much, who helped them become the men they grew into, the family men, the contributors to society, the leaders of the day. And it's only in that moment that Hundert realizes for the first time in the whole movie he realizes that he had been so focused on the one student he couldn't help, he couldn't see all the students he had helped. He couldn't see the forest for the tree. And now seeing the forest, he came out of retirement. He went back to teaching. The parable of the sower, really better called the parable of the four soils, it teaches us that many people will respond with less than saving faith. Many people will not change. But the parable of the four soils also promises us that people will respond with saving faith. That people will change. That there is good soil in the world and so you can go and share the good news knowing that your labor will not be in vain. Like hundreds, you can get back to teaching. In our context, get back to sharing the good news of the gospel, scattering the seed, and trust God to handle the results. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for this incredible story, which in a way is so profoundly encouraging for us. It's not up to us to somehow manipulate growth. God, you are sovereign. You are in control of all things. You have called us to be faithful, first and foremost, in following you. and to be faithful in sharing the gospel with others. Help us to do that very thing. For those people in our lives, family members, friends, who for whatever reason are not walking with you, Lord Jesus, in this moment they don't seem to be interested in the gospel, we pray for them. God, we pray that you would be at work in their hearts the heart is not our territory, it's yours. And so we pray that you would be at work in ways that we can't. In the meantime, give us every opportunity to show your love and to share your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.